Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Well, we're about to enter into the holiday season, and what that means is that we have a number of opportunities coming up for us to love our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates. And so this morning, I want to encourage each of us to take full advantage of those opportunities, to be open-hearted, to be open-handed, to be unafraid. And so turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 12. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice." This morning's passage is in a context of suffering. The theme of suffering permeates this letter to the Philippians, and for good reason. Namely, the Apostle Paul is writing from prison, where he's suffering for preaching the gospel. And he's writing to the church of Philippi, which was born in the midst of adversity, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution. Now... Being confronted with suffering presents a problem for us, at least most of the time. Because the minute we bring up suffering, what's our temptation? What do we want to do? Well, we all want to do one of two things, I think. One is to plug our ears and to click our heels together and pretend that suffering is reserved for times past, long gone, or for faraway places. And isn't it nice that none of us have to face the kinds of nasty things that the early Christians had to face or that our brothers and sisters in Christ in North Korea or in the Middle East have to face on a daily basis? That's one response. And another response is to turn into sullen, embattled, heavy, dour presences that carry the weight of a broken and nasty world on our shoulders as if the whole Christian life is just about carrying around a guilty conscience and taking ourselves very, very seriously. Neither of those fly when we examine the Scriptures. Neither of those fly in Philippians because it's the Apostle Paul who is writing about his own suffering. And he's looking suffering full in the face. He's in prison and he could die. And the one thing that's most obvious and clear is that he's filled to the brim with joy and gratitude in the midst of his suffering 
because of what God is doing. In many ways, the main part of the letter to the Philippians deals with how suffering is to be received and interpreted in the Christian life. And more than that, how there can be real joy and contentment in the midst of suffering. Now, it's important for us to remember that the church at Philippi is no stranger to suffering either. As I already mentioned, they were a church born in the midst of suffering and persecution, born in adversity. The Apostle Paul, when he came to plant the church at Philippi, was only there for a couple of days. And then he was thrown in prison, and then he was run out of the city. But, just because that church was familiar with suffering, doesn't mean they were immune to suffering. It doesn't mean they couldn't waver, that they couldn't have their doubts. It doesn't mean that they didn't need encouragement. It doesn't mean that they didn't need to be strengthened or reinforced. How many times have you done something good, something right, something true that honors the Lord, and it's caused you pain, and you've been tempted to learn your lesson? I'll never do that again. Isn't that the way that it goes with most of us? We become Christians, we're young, we're zealous, and in simple faith, we take real risks for the kingdom of God. We try hard things. And then the smackdown comes and it hurts. And it may take a while, it may take us a while to get beaten down enough, but eventually we learn to keep our mouth shut. And we learn to stop taking risks and we become comfortable. Isn't that Do you feel that in yourself? And then what happens? Well, some preacher stands up and talks about taking risks for the kingdom of God. And our consciences are at first accused and we feel convicted. And then we trot out before our consciences those times where 2, 5, 10, 30 years ago, we were hardcore and we did some difficult things and... Yeah, we have suffered, and whew, we're off the hook, right? And then when a preacher stands up and actually does and says the kinds of things that lead to suffering, we just kind of cringe and say, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, we've already been there. Can we stop and be done with that? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Can you relate to me? So, Just because the church in Philippi was born in adversity, just because this church was born in adversity, just because you came to faith and faced adversity, doesn't let any of us off the hook, does it? In fact, what we need most of all is this exact kind of encouragement, lest we we be found to be resting on our past faithfulness. The Apostle Paul knows that because he's seen churches turn. Churches born in adversity that have turned and opposed him. And so he starts out by addressing it head on. Yes, I'm in prison again. Let me teach you how to receive and interpret the fact that I'm in prison. Now, if you had been in Philippi, what do you think your main concern would have been for the Apostle Paul being in prison? What would you have wanted or expected him to say to you to comfort you that he's in prison? 
I know that I'm in prison, but I don't want you to be concerned because fill in the blank. How would you fill in that blank? What would you want to hear from him? I know I'm in prison, but I don't want you to be concerned. Don't worry about me because I'll get out soon because I've got clean water and good food because the jailers aren't so very bad after all. They're kind of taking good care of me because I'm in good health and in good spirits because, well, I did this to myself. I'm here because I sinned. I said things I shouldn't have in a way I shouldn't have. I was wrong, and I've learned my lesson. And so I'm, I'm convinced that it's going to turn out for the best. I've made my apologies, and, and so it's going to work out. Those are the kinds of things we'd want to hear, right? But look at what he says. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. In other words, don't be afraid, don't be concerned. My imprisonment has served to advance the gospel, not to hinder it. Don't be afraid. This isn't hindering the advance of the gospel. This is furthering it. What's his assumption? His assumption is that their main concern is that the gospel advance, that the kingdom of God, the cause of Christ, go forward. That's what he assumes is their concern. The one thing they're going to be worried about, thinking Paul's in prison, oh no, he's supposed to be going out and planting churches and bringing the kingdom of God forward. He's in prison. What's the state of the work? What's the state of the kingdom of God? God forbid that the kingdom be hindered by this. That's his assumption. Now, do you think that the advance of the kingdom of Christ was foremost in the minds of the Philippians? Would it have been foremost in your mind? Maybe for some of you, maybe for some people in that church. But, and I hope so. But I certainly doubt it was that way for everyone. And I certainly doubt it would be that way for us, or most of us, I should say. But the advance of the kingdom, the advance of the gospel, is definitely whose concern? The Apostle Paul's. And it's clearly something that he thinks ought to be everybody's concern, right? So this statement, this statement, have no fear... I want you to know my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. It's, it serves as a double-edged sword here. For those who really are genuinely concerned with the advance of the gospel, it's a comfort and an encouragement to them. Right? Just a straightforward comfort and encouragement. And to everybody else, it's a very mild rebuke, a very gentle corrective to those who would have put even the welfare of the Apostle Paul over the cause of Christ. I do think that the truth is most of us would have been concerned about Paul's comfort and about our own comfort. It would have made us uncomfortable to see him suffer, one, because we love him maybe, but two, because whenever he suffers, it's embarrassing. Could he just stop 
making a fool of himself and of us by extension. Could he stop? It's painful to watch. It's painful to know that everywhere he goes, he gets thrown in prison. Which is why so many churches get embarrassed of him. Which is why so many churches and so many people reject him in the end. That kind of thinking doesn't work for the Apostle Paul because the cause of Christ and the advance of the gospel, the advance of the kingdom, that's what matters most to him. That's what he's chiefly concerned about. That's why he gets out of bed every morning. That's what he's willing to lay down his life for and eventually does. He doesn't have patience for lesser things like comfort. And that should be true for each of us. So he's going to interpret his suffering and he gives them a test. This is how you should measure whether or not this is good. Is Christ honored? Is the gospel advanced? Answer, yes. Therefore, this is a cause for rejoicing. This is a cause for rejoicing. Because the definition of a Christian is just this. Somebody who loves Jesus Christ above their own life. Somebody who's taken up their cross, laid down their life, lost their life to find their life in Christ. Christ is the glorious maker of heaven and earth who has made us for himself and has stooped down to us in our sin and saved us from his wrath. He is our king and our savior. The Christian lives to know him as he is, to see his name exalted in all of the earth, which is why when our Lord taught us to pray, he taught us to pray starting with, hallowed be your name. May your name be honored in my life, and in the life of those around me. And the second petition, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a reason we don't think to ask for our daily bread until we've prayed for God's name to be honored and for his kingdom to come. God's glory, God's renown, the growth of His kingdom, these are the most precious things. Now, we all run after many things in our pursuit of joy and happiness. We all often begin our prayers by asking for our daily bread. But deep down, the Christian recognizes that at the end of the day, we were made to find our joy in knowing, loving, and obeying Jesus Christ. And that's why, at the end of the day, you can take away everything in this world, and so long as we have Christ, and the bare necessities, we'll be content. I, um, I went home this past weekend, my grandfather died, and I had the privilege of worshiping in um, Amanda's and my home church. And uh, they've had a new pastor there for the past couple of years, three or four years, and every time we go back, I'm more and more encouraged and strengthened by his preaching, because he's more and more focusing in on the sins of the congregation, and the last time we were there, in the middle of his sermon, he stopped, and he said, you know, all of you know the verse, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. 
all of you know that verse. Every one of you have memorized that verse. And you think of God, and when you think of God, you think of him giving you the desires of your heart, which isn't what that verse is about. Would to God that you had memorized instead, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. The true Christian is content with Jesus and the bare necessities. Is that you? Do you long to see and to know Jesus? And then having tasted and seen that he is good, do you long to see others come to know him and serve him? To see his kingdom advance on earth as the gospel goes forward. Does that thought and that hope bring you joy? I hope so. Because if it doesn't, the rest of the sermon won't make any sense because it depends on you caring above all things, about the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul gives the church at Philippi three encouragements to help them understand how his suffering, how his imprisonment is serving to build the kingdom of God. And if your hope is the glory of God, if your goal is to see his kingdom advance, then there will be a great encouragement to you, I hope, as you consider how to do your part, as we consider together how to do our part to see God's kingdom grow and advance here in Bloomington. So he gives them three encouragements. The first encouragement is this. The whole praetorian, the whole imperial guard gets to hear the gospel and see the gospel because he's in prison. In verse 13, he says, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, that should hit home with the church at Philippi. Do you know why it should hit home for the church at Philippi? Because that church was founded at the very beginning with a woman named Lydia a a formerly demonic slave girl and a jailer who heard the gospel because the Apostle Paul was in prison with Silas, singing hymns at midnight. You remember the story? There they are, thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, singing hymns at midnight, and God sends an earthquake, and the door is open to the jail, and the jailer's going to fall on his sword and kill himself, and Paul says, don't do it, we're all here. And he says, what must I do to be saved? The imperial guards, because of this imprisonment, and everybody else in prison get to hear the gospel. Don't think of the pain and suffering. Think of the souls who will be saved through it all. God has orchestrated this imprisonment to allow many other people to be exposed to the gospel. People who would not otherwise be exposed to it. Prisoners and prison guards. And more than hearing the gospel, they get to see the Apostle Paul live out the gospel in the midst of his suffering. They get to see him content. They get to see him singing hymns and psalms and praying and testifying to the grace of God. There's no more powerful witness than that. Nothing gives us the opportunity to demonstrate how precious Jesus is than when all of the silly things of this world are stripped away from us. When all of our worldly comforts are taken, 
And we continue to rejoice and hope in God. That is when Christ is glorified, when he is seen and shown to be better than our comfort, than our ease, than our entertainment. That's when our lives most clearly proclaim our hope in Jesus. This is especially true of the Apostle Paul because he didn't even have to be in prison in the first place. Everyone there knew it. He wasn't in jail for murder. He wasn't there for treason. He wasn't there as a thief. He didn't cheat on his taxes. He was there for one reason, and that was because he believed and was convinced that all men are sinners and need to be confronted with their sins. And God made a way for such sinners to be reconciled to him, forgiven and saved through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he would not stop talking about it. If he would shut up, if he would stop talking about it, no problem. But he wouldn't do it. So that's why he was there. He didn't have to be there, but for any reason that he could not stop talking about God. And he couldn't stop living like, you know what? It's actually true. This is for real. People are dying, and I have good news. So I'm taking it to them, and I will not shut up because souls are at stake. So the Apostle Paul took up his cross so that others might live, and he brought a living demonstration of the suffering of Jesus. His disregard for his own life testified to his love of God, his love of others, and his certain hope of the resurrection. Everyone there saw it. When you unite the proclamation of the gospel with that kind of testimony to the truth of the gospel, powerful things happen. Lives are changed because the testimony of our lips hits with the force of our lives. Nobody could look at Paul and call him a hypocrite. Nobody could look at him and fail to see that something had happened to this man. So, encouragement number one. The guards get the gospel in a powerful and potent way. Church, don't think of my pain. Don't think of your pain. Think about the souls that are being saved. Church, don't be scandalized by my suffering. My suffering is the very thing that will help the gospel come alive to those who are watching. Every time we shrink back from suffering for the gospel... We're denying people not just the words of life, but an opportunity to see us live what we know. The second encouragement is this. The brothers get confidence. Verse 14, he says, Most of the brethren, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's a little bit weird, right? He's thrown in prison for preaching, and they're made more bold to preach. How is it that they were given confidence by his imprisonment? Why did it inspire confidence and boldness instead of a crippling kind of fear? Here's a quick test. Today after church, I go down to Kirkwood, I start preaching, and somebody throws me in jail. A, 
you're encouraged to go down on Kirkwood and start preaching. B, you shrink back and you're not so very confident that we should be preaching down on Kirkwood. Now, the truth is, whenever somebody suffers for doing what's right, it really does strengthen us and give us confidence. There are many examples of this kind of thing in our own church where I've had the privilege of being strengthened and encouraged by your faith. Um, An example that that really sticks out to me is a couple years ago, you know how every... Every January, we go down to the courthouse on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and we make known our opposition to the legalization of abortion, to the awfulness of the slaughter of the unborn in our land. A couple years back, um, we weren't the only ones there. Do you remember this? Some of you will. We weren't the only ones there. There were counter-protesters there, and they were obscene. They were nasty. And uh, this may have been the year that I actually preached. I can't remember. But um, some of you began to engage with them. uh, Some of the college students, a freshman, uh, a college freshman who had been on the edge because we had been preaching about abortion, was there and began to engage with these counter-protesters. Not because he was a belligerent personality, not because he was a good arguer, not because he was self-righteous, but because he had a conscience and was compelled to talk to them and had faith that God would use him. And they were nasty to him, but you couldn't believe how strengthened I was to see this young man engage out of love for the Unborn, out of love for the poor and oppressed, out of love for the counter-protesters, out of concern for the glory of God, was not eloquent, was not well-spoken, but was courageous, had real strength, even if at times weak and fearful and trembling. His strength became my strength. And I wasn't just strengthened, I was convicted of my own cowardice and my own laziness. And I was spurred on to be more gutsy and more faithful in my ministry. And that kind of thing happens. It's what makes it a privilege for us, your pastors, to serve you. Is that we're not dragging you along, we're being pushed by you. That's how others are given confidence when... When you testify to the gospel in the midst of the wicked and are ready to embrace their scorn. And that's what was happening with the Apostle Paul. He was out there living like, you know, this gospel stuff is actually real and means something and I believe it. And when he was thrown in prison, everybody said, hey, this is real. The world hates Jesus Jesus' glory is on full display. The cross of Jesus is visible and the suffering. This is the power of God for salvation. And so he was thrown in prison and everybody went out and were more faithful and more vocal. 
When Jesus is glorified like that, sinners are converted, saints are strengthened, and the wicked gnash their teeth, and that's the way that God works. So the second encouragement is that the brothers are given confidence. Don't be discouraged by resistance. Redouble your efforts. That's the lesson. The third encouragement is this. The ambitious preach Christ. It says this, Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, if the last one was weird, this is by far the weirdest encouragement. Right? Make make no mistake about it. These men are preaching Christ. They're preaching the true gospel. Their doctrine is sound. Don't think anything but that because the Apostle Paul never had any problem condemning anyone who preached a false gospel. If it wasn't good doctrine, if it wasn't the truth of Christ, he wouldn't be speaking about it here the way he is. He would have no patience for it. You remember what he says to the church in Galatia. If anyone preaches another gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. Let him be damned. Later in this letter, so the letter to the Philippians, he refers to false teachers as dogs. Dogs who should be avoided at all costs. He has no patience for false gospels. He has no hesitation anathematizing, condemning those who preach and teach false gospels. And yet here are these wicked and ambitious men preaching Christ. And he's rejoicing. What's going on here? What's going on? Who are these ambitious men? What are they trying to do? We can't really say for sure. John Calvin says the obvious question is what would motivate anybody, anybody who has a clear understanding of the gospel and the ability to preach it clearly, what would motivate them to do that? And he only gives one answer, and it's one line, and it's this, quote, ambition is a blind and furious beast, end quote. Ambition is a blind and furious beast. These are ambitious men. That's their problem. They're ambitious. They've set themselves up as rivals in some respect to the Apostle Paul. They're going to take advantage of the fact that he's in prison and he can't do anything. So most likely they're preaching the gospel simply because they have an opportunity to rise up and to supplant the Apostle Paul while he's in prison. They have an opportunity... They're going to take it, and they're going to make disciples for themselves. And they're not going to be able to do it by preaching a false gospel, because that's not how Paul preached. 
So they're going to toe the line and they're going to be faithful in their preaching. They're going to give all the right tells that say, yeah, I'm right here. But they're not about the kingdom of God. They're about building their own kingdoms. They're about securing men's loyalty, not to God, not to Christ, but to themselves. It's like they think they're going to cut in on his market share or something like that. So what are the takeaway points? Well, one, it's absolutely possible to preach the true gospel and to do so in pretense for the sake of selfish gain. It's very easy to do, and you don't have to look like a wolf to do it. You can look so good that true shepherds find cause to rejoice in your work. And there are lots of ways that this can work out. There are lots of ways that it can work out here. Let me give you an example of one way that I've seen it work out. When I first became a believer, the Lord directed me to a church where there was a youth pastor who taught the scriptures like nobody I'd ever heard before. He exposited them. He opened them up. He was faithful. As far as I could tell then and as far as I can tell looking back, he was faithful in how he taught and preached the word. And he set me on a really good trajectory theologically. I became basically reformed. He directed me when I came to college to this very church and told me this is the church I should be at. And then he was outed for being sexually immoral with several girls in the youth group. And in his pride, in his arrogance, he refused to resign. Thought he could make it through and survive the fact that he had been involved sexually with three different girls. And then when he was finally forced to resign, within months, he was youth pastor at another church an hour and a half away. He now has his Ph.D. and is the pastor of a very large church in the Minneapolis area. He wrecked lots of people. Lots of people from that youth group don't follow the Lord anymore. Four of us became pastors, though. Four of us. There's the fruit of his ambition, and there's the fruit of the gospel. And they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. There's the fruit of his ambition and his pride and his lust, and there's the fruit of the gospel. And we should be careful to distinguish between the two. And we should rejoice when God uses wicked men to bear fruit for his kingdom, because what are we anyway? It's a miracle that God uses any of us. Second takeaway point. Our heart has to belong to God. We have to care more about the gospel going forward than about anything else. We shouldn't get too uptight because we don't like who is taking it forward. So long as it's the gospel. So long as it's God's truth. That doesn't mean that we have to shut off 
that we have to close our eyes and support wicked men with false motives simply because they have a sound message. No. Far from it. Now, those men need to stop, and they need to be opposed and exposed. Nevertheless, our hearts must be owned first and foremost by the gospel and by the kingdom of God. And we need to rejoice to see God using wicked men to further his kingdom. This is a testimony to the fact that God is powerful, that he's in charge, and that his kingdom advances at his command. And at no one else's command. It depends not on me and not on you. Not on this church or any other church. Not on the man who wills or runs, but on God who has mercy and does as he pleases. The third takeaway point is that we need to be concerned whether or not we are the ones who preach Christ from rivalry and envy. We need to be examining if our concern is the advancement of the gospel and God's kingdom or the advancement of our own kingdom. The advancement of the kingdom we've built for ourselves and whether or not we're simply using the gospel as a means for gain. If it's possible for others, it's possible for us. I was at Starbucks yesterday working on my sermon and uh, there was a youngish man from another church in there and... He had maybe three appointments with different people throughout the course of the day. I was there pretty much the whole day. And uh, he was doing good work. He's a small group leader in their church. And he was talking to people about the gospel. He was talking to them about their sin. He was talking to them about the need to get involved in, in a church and not just visit. And to get involved in a small group where they can be known have their sins known and exposed, where they can talk about their sins and confess their sins one to another and bear one another's burdens. All really, really great stuff. Everything he said was excellent. And I found myself the whole time I was there angry, frustrated, fighting within myself to to not see this man, to see this man as a co-laborer, a gift from God. I should have, it should have been a blessing to be there. Who is this guy? Who is this guy here? I don't know who he is. But here in Starbucks, in Bloomington, this guy, and he's discipling people, and it's good. It's good. And I'm fighting, thinking he's a, my competitor. That's, that's our shtick. Stop it. <laughs> so wicked of me. This stuff goes deep down. These temptations, they affect all of us. It's so easy... Can you imagine um, the church at Philippi, the born in the midst of all this suffering and persecution and all this awfulness, and they've gone through all this stuff, and then, like, Apollos shows up and plants another church on the other side of town, and because they've already borne the brunt of a lot of the suffering, it goes much easier for them. 
Maybe you got two options. You can be bitter that you're the one that bore the brunt of it, or you can rejoice of what God's doing. So easy, so easy for us to get tied up, closed-fisted, territorial. No, no, no. No, this isn't about us. It can't be. It cannot, cannot, cannot be about us. It cannot be about our kingdom. It must be about the kingdom of God. So when people suffer for the gospel, unbelievers see, both see and hear the power of the gospel. The saints are strengthened to be more bold for Christ. And even the ambitious enemies of God preach Christ. So let me wrap this up and bring it all together as best as I can. Suffering is simply the cost of following Jesus. It's what he uses to save sinners and to strengthen saints. So we shouldn't shrink back in fear when we see others suffering for Christ's sake. We should trust that God will use it and we should be strengthened by it. We should never shrink from suffering for the gospel. It will be life and joy and peace to you and to all who believe. It's our highest privilege to lay down our lives for others as Christ laid down his life for us. It's not something to get morbid about either. Our goal is not comfort and ease. Our goal is also not feeling oppressed and persecuted. Our goal is the glory of God and the growth of his kingdom, which is something to rejoice in. Rejoice in and forget about what happens to us. I'm not calling us to suffer this morning. If that's what you think, you've missed the point. The call is not to suffer. The call is to love God and to love people and to love the kingdom of God so much, so much that it doesn't matter if we suffer. It doesn't matter what happens to us. To love our neighbors so much that a little bit of rejection isn't so troublesome. Not compared to the, the joy of seeing some people repent and turn to Christ. So my goal this morning is just, just as we go into the Advent season to strengthen us, we have so many opportunities before us to take baby steps. Just baby steps in the right direction. Baby steps. We all have neighbors. We all have co-workers. We all have people around us that are going to hell. Some of whom might not even know that we're Christians. We have family members that we're going to be interacting with over the next month and a half that it's always difficult for us to talk to them about God, about repentance, about faith. We have brothers and sisters in Christ maybe sitting next to us in the aisle that we find it difficult to speak truth to. There's sin in their lives they need to be confronted with, and we don't have the faith for it. But all of that is silly. The hang-ups are silly. We have greater things to rejoice in than our own comfort and our ease. We have a God who's pleased with our obedience and with our love and who looks on our sufferings and calls us to rejoice in them and who rewards us richly for them. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So believe, believe, have faith. Believe the gospel. Believe that heaven and hell are at stake. Believe in the resurrection of the body to life everlasting. And then go take baby steps. Start a conversation with a family member over Thanksgiving. Invite a co-worker just to the spectacular or to church. It's easy. It's a baby step, right? Invite a neighbor over for dinner. And then have faith. Trust that God will use you. I tell the college students all the time, look, look, in all of Bloomington, God has placed that person across the hall from you. That neighbor has a Christian neighbor. That coworker is in a cubicle next to a Christian. Of all the people they could be next to, they could rub shoulders with, they're rubbing shoulders and next to you. Maybe God has a purpose in that. Maybe God plans to use you. Maybe he means to use you to save those people. Maybe that's why he put them next to a Christian. Have faith. Be hopeful. His word does not return to him void. Trust that he means to use you to build his kingdom. That's why he called you in the first place. And don't be afraid.